1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. We're here today with Gregory Jones Katz, a lecturer in history at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, Shenzhen. He recently published Deconstruction, an American Institution. His publisher is the University of Chicago Press. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Jones jones cats or lecture Jones cats
2: <laughs> Thanks for having me
1: So let's first talk about your striking cover of the book. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
2: Oh yes uh, well I mean I, I'm very very pleased with the cover when I when I saw it um, you know initially the the press um, asked me if I had any uh, you know criteria or you know stipulations about what I'd like the cover to look like or the direction I wanted them to go in. And I I asked them, um, no American flags. (laughs) Um, I asked (laughs) them, uh, no, no, uh, no individuals. And I asked them uh, also, no, no, no um, uh, text or letters. And that was primarily because of the reception history of deconstruction. I didn't want that emphasized. I wanted it to sort of say something else. And they, they came up with this, this image that is, uh, is at least to me, uh, a little bit abstract, but it's, it's clearly a, a building, right? Um, architecture somehow, but abstract enough to leave um, a lot to one's imagination, um, but also obviously intersected with the title and, you know, overall argument of the book about institution, about it being an American institution. Um, and then, of course, there's also the very subtle, I guess they, they snuck in the red, white, and blue. If you look at the title of the, of, on um, on the book, um, the, the yeah, colors sure. and then my name, they snuck that in as well to sort of also emphasize that. Um, I'll also, uh, so I was very, very pleased, very, very happy. And I will also just note, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the, uh, Mossy humanities building at the university of Wisconsin, Madison, where I, I earned my my phd a lot of my my former fellow graduate students as soon as they saw my books cover were, were shocked they thought that actually it was a photo of the mossy humanities building the point being <laughs> not, the point being it's not i don't i'm not pretty sure it's not but my point being is that you know there are many buildings like this in higher education i think that it, it evokes that and i think that that um, nicely as i said inter- intersects with the uh with the content and form of the book so
1: so let's dive into our questions here. Sure. Firstly, what were the dual challenges against the so-called new criticism? And you might want to go into that. Discussed at the 1965 Yale Colloquium on Literary Criticism, a, a pretty uh, seminal event in your book. And why did Paul de Monde's paper on the politics of poetic difference and temporalities, found within uh, uh, Geyer Glukacs' 1920 theory of the novel, which uh, Demand assessed. Why did this so captivate uh, J. Hillis Miller? Again, a pretty seminal figure in your book. And how was Demand's reading and Miller's previous publications informed by Martin Heidegger? Um, Well, the dual challenges launched against the new
2: criticism discussed at this uh, 1965 Yale Colloquium on on Literary Criticism um, were both against the new critics' formalist response to, quote, subjective impressionism and brute empiricism. Now, both both these ways of approaching literature, uh, the new critics and their modernist allies felt, were insufficiently attentive to the linguistic forms and power of literature. Subjective impressionism, basically, is letting one's impressions of literature, the feelings, thoughts of its beauty, determine the meaning of literature itself. Brute empiricism, on the other hand, is letting prose and poetry simply mean what they mean as products of their surroundings. That is... You focus on bio, the biography of the author, the intent of the author, and that, that would dictate the significance of the poem in this, in Brute empiricism. So to attend to the linguistic forms, such as the meter, the rhythm the, the of the poem, or, or etc., the according to the new critics, was the best and most rigorous way to put aside subjectivity and attain a kind of scientific or objective assessment of literature and its cultural and intellectual power. The Cold War is key to the rise and then dominance of the new critics' formalism in English literature departments in the 1950s and 1960s. In this broad context, seeing a text in its political or historical setting was tantamount to heresy against the quote-unquote sacred text. Often, it was the Romantic poets who demonstrated the dangers of allowing the gravity of a poem's subject to to mismatch with its linguistic form. Here's a perfect example. Um, British romantic P.B. Shelley's posthumously published um, poem Death, quote, death is here and death is there. Death is busy everywhere, all around, within, beneath, above is death, and we are death. You can see how the, 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 the subject of death doesn't match with, with the, this sort of, uh, you know, a happy, happy-go-lucky uh, 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 d- d- delivery here. Um, all important to note is that the new critical approach found expression not just in, in, in textbooks, Um, but was part of the massification and expansion of higher education in the late 1950s and the 1960s. So, back to your question. The dual challenges against new criticism discussed the 1965 Yale Colloquium. They were, one, against the new critics' penchant for seeing unity between form and content of an artwork as being, this is the definition of good literature, and number two, the tendency to downplay or ignore ignore history. These two challenges were launched at this small two-day gathering of literary critics and scholars at the 1965 Yale colloquium. Um, what happened at the colloquium was, as you mentioned, the first time three of the future Yale school members um, who were the most prominent group of deconstructionist critics in the seventies and eighties, they were there in the same room talking about ways, if any, could in fact be found to move beyond formalism. There was Paul DeMond, Jay Hillis Miller and Jeffrey Hartman. Now, Paul DeMond um, came through Harvard's comp li- comparative literature program. He was then teaching at Cornell, and as you noted, Man's paper on the politics of poetic difference and temporalities, found within Lukács' theory of the novel, captivated then Johns Hopkins professor of English, J. Hillis Miller. Miller was then a proponent of the criticism of consciousness, a way of approaching the oeuvre of an author that searched for the underlying principles in the texts, and therefore communed somehow with the consciousness of the author. Edmund Herschel was the philosophical lodestar of the literary critical movement, though Poulet, once Miller's colleague at Hopkins, transferred and adapted this approach to literature. So what captivated Miller? Well, first of all, DeMond was apparently very charismatic. His delivery, his mannerisms, his accent. Beyond this, however, DeMond had a deep and obviously very incisive knowledge of European philosophy and was up to date on all the latest trends. He also had a penchant for speaking definitively and decisively that also had his own effect. Intellectually, Dumont's paper on the theory of the novel went contrary to the reigning methodological orthodoxy in that, according to Dumont, Lukács correctly identified irony as a chief characteristic of the modern novel, but he also ironically succumbed to an organicist linear model of the history of the novel that began with ancient Greece and went all the way to the early 20th century. For Dumont, in other words, Lukács' text ironically, unintentionally undermined the very premises of his core historical argument. Central to DeMond's then transmogrified new critical formalist approach was Martin Heidegger's philosophy, specifically Heidegger's differentiation between the two levels of temporality, the epistemological and the ontological, the former where attentions and ideas occur, the latter where being in the world happens. For DeMond, there's always an unresolvable division or conflict between these two levels, and DeMond uses this, this Heideggerian insight um, to read literary texts, like the theory of the novel. Deman's politics of poetic difference is the difference of the text from and against itself. Significantly, DeMond's Heidegger, DeMond's reading of Heidegger, ran counter to Miller's own use of Heidegger in, in two mid-1960s books in which Miller read 20th century poets as trying to capture the presence of the world, person, objects, divinity in, in, in their writings now that God had left, left, left the world. DeMond's approach to literature did not just radically rework new critical precepts, which Miller himself, as a critic of consciousness, argued against, but challenged the principles of Miller's critical project. Miller, being the open-minded scholar that he was, struck up with a friendship with the Demont there and then in New Haven in 1965.
1: So what was the debate over Poulet between DeMond and Jeffrey Hartman that similarly captivated Miller? And what was DeMont's critique of Maurice Merleau-Ponty's concept of history? Well, at the 65 Yale colloquium, as you note, Damond and Jeffrey
2: Hartman discussed or debated um, Poulet's general approach to the study of literature and his specific readings of American-British author Henry James. Before diving into that, though, it's worth noting Hartman's training at Yale University in the 50s in the school's comparative literature program. Comparative literature essentially compares and contrasts literary works and traditions from different national traditions. At Yale, Hartman received a very European and cosmopolitan education, Um, Hartman eventually gravitated toward the kind of literary criticism supremely practiced at Yale by Eric Auerbach, whose mimesis Mimesis, explored how everyday life was represented by Western writers from ancient history all the way up to the early 20th century. Hartman, in temperament and interest, found Auerbach compelling because he spoke to the tension to both literary form and literary history in a manner that sufficiently captured um, the complexity and historical development of literature itself. Now, the debate at, 19, on the, at the 1965 colloquium around and on Poulet centered on w- whether Poulet's reading of, the, of Henry James's oeuvre was, in fact, formalist, as he claimed. Hartman's paper was titled, quote, unquote, Beyond Formalism, a question mark barely implied. And I should, should, should stress, you know, formalism, again, was part of the new critical approach, the reigning orthodoxy, let's say, in the, in the American Academy, especially English literature departments. So Poulet claimed to be formalist, but Hartman argued Poulet was not only insufficiently formalist, but no critic could escape formalism. For to do so, Hartman argued, was to take a leap into the divine, and identify a perfect literary form, as well as commune with the author under, under investigation. Hartman gave a few examples in his paper, but focused on if Poulet had in fact identified the aforementioned James's consciousness and whether this consciousness permeated all of his writings and was harmonious with a particular historical period. Basically, did James infuse his work with his way of thinking, and was this way of thinking, its form, congruent and embodied the surrounded social and historical context? So, Demont steps in during the discussion after Hartman's paper. He somewhat forcefully suggests that Poulet generally, despite Hartman's generous reading, never acknowledges the dark side of literary texts, that is, The conflict between the two modes of temporality that makes the text fall back on and undermine its premises. And in this regard, we could remember what DeMond read in Lukács' novel uh, um, study. For DeMond, this was a serious lapse. And and this was why Poulet was not a formalist per se, not because, as as it was for Hartman, Poulet posited that James uh, and his work um, uh, were of one form. Miller uh, also stepped into this conversation, and he is a Poulet defender, more or less, and he argued that Poulet was indeed a formalist and lived up to the, his claims of being one. The whole debate and uh, uh, discussion nicely captured the differences between the three future Yale critics. However, as it would be in the future, DeMond assumed central stage in the last discussions of the colloquium. There and then, Hartman again raised, again raised the question to his, to his colleagues whether it was possible to move beyond formalism. Two attendees, um, uh, uh, instrumental for organizing the famous 1966 Johns Hopkins Symposium, suggested that Merleau-Ponty's concept, concept of history, essentially a Marxist dialectic that would resolve contradictions and culminate in the harmony between people's art and society, that this could get critics beyond formalism. Demand wanted none of this. He argued the first, that first and foremost, attention must be given to the dual-track temporalities that ensured conflicted meanings of texts. Such an attention to to this for Daman was required before any talk of resolution or understanding of literature within its social or historical context. Key, and I want to stress this, is that Daman was not against history. He was, however, against what he considered to be the facile ways in which literary historians approach the linguistic complexities of text as a reflection or product of the surrounding settings.
1: So let's talk about that 1966 Johns Hopkins uh, Symposium, The Languages of Criticism and the Science of Man. How did the Cold War and the work of Ronald Crane prompt this symposium? Uh, you know, I know the former you, you, you discuss at length in your book, and you also mentioned Ronald Crane. And I would wonder if you can elaborate on the latter, Ron Crane. Sure. Um, the Cold War, as I mentioned, was a broad
2: context for the adoption and establishment of the new criticism as, let's say, a base or ground for American literary criticism. Uh, during the spectacular expansion of the American you know, of American universities and colleges in the fifties and sixties, there was not only a need for a massified manner of teaching literature, a need met by the new New Criticism. Uh, due to the pressures of funding, prestige, and power, the American academic humanist enterprise in general um, was always searching for rigorous or scientific ways to approach their subjects. This was a function of the growing power and prestige of and funding and funding given to the hard sciences. Um, in this context, for American higher ed, American humanists found themselves hard-pressed to justify their existence, their accuracy and rigor. rigor. To a certain extent, these forces helped embed the new critical approach to reading literature into the American professional, professional critic's psyche. However, by the mid-1950s, it was commonly felt that any innovation made by the new critics was, was done light years ago. Nevertheless, there was still this pressure for being scientific and rigorous, Um, and the old ways weren't doing the trick anymore. The leading new critics had stopped publishing. Um, and, um, basically uh, the American professional critical class had, had, um, stopped at what was called the formalist impasse. Like I mentioned earlier, was discussed at the 65 Yale colloquium. Cue the October, 1966 Johns Hopkins symposium, the languages of criticism and the science of man. Um, um. science is a man. Hopkins was founded primarily as a research ins- university, one of the first in the United States. This institutional culture, coupled with the university's advanced work in its literature departments, created a broad interest and local support for the proposed symposium. The 66 event uh, organized uh, uh, broadly to introduce the American Academy to structuralism, an, an intellectual movement then at its height in the French intellectual world, that's scientifically focused on the underlying parts and holes of a social form. The Hopkins symposium supported by the Ford foundation known for funding cold war projects and endeavors is often remembered as hosting the structuralist controversy an event, which is, which is what the, the, the Hopkins symposium became known as in its, in, in its published form. This is an event where French philosopher Jacques Derrida deconstructively read anthropologists and ethnologist Claude, Claude Lévi-Strauss's work, Dethroning the King of Structuralism. More on that in a bit. Importantly, the title given to the volume of collect papers published afterwards subordinated the original title, the title of the symposium, uh, The Languages of Criticism and the Science of Man, to now The Structuralist Controversy. This sexier title obscured what you have mentioned in your question about the work of Ronald Crane, an American literary critic and historian found, and, and founder of the Chicago School, which served as a lodestar for the organizer uh, uh, organizers of the '66 Hopkins Symposium. Now, Crane was a methodological pluralist. He believed that adherence to one single way of reading literature led to the needless restriction of the meaning and experience of prose, poetry, and life. Crane was also one of, the, of a handful who launched critiques of the New Critics early in the 20th century. And Crane served as an inspiration behind the '66 Johns Hopkins Symposium. It was Crane whom organizers had in mind, not simply when titling their symposium The Languages of Criticism, but when conceptualizing the overarching goals of the event. For organizers specifically aimed to address the malaise into which the American critic had fallen in recent years. That is, they felt that American critics sought more rigorous, new, and scientific ways of understanding literature, but lacked the intellectual tools and training to do so. They wanted... The American critics wanted to adopt and adapt the new, quote unquote, prophets of interpretation springing up across the North Atlantic. In a way, then, the, 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 the Cold War sciences of man um, intersects with the, the other part of the title of the symposium, the languages of criticism. And in this way, Ronald Crane uh, sort of um, unfortunately forgotten, I think, in this story often um, sort of figures into into this larger
1: story. In the context of Martin Heidegger's so-called destruction, at the 1964 to 65 ENS seminar, how did Jacques Derrida cast transcendental truth, objectivity, ideality, etc., as writing and difference instead as transcendental or something along those lines? And what were Derrida's temporal criticisms of Heidegger? And at the 66 Symposium, uh, Derrida's subversion of Claude Levi-Strauss's I guess self self subverted incest pro, prohibition vis a vis the nature culture opposition in structuralism.
2: Well, one way to approach Jacques Derrida's deconstruction, uh, whether his general interpretive strategy or his his, his reading of Levi Strauss's incest pro, prohibition at the Hopkins Symposium, is as you've suggested to begin with Derrida's prior work on transcendental truth, objectivity, ideality, etc. As as and he cast this as quote unquote writing. Um. And this should be uh, understood in the context of Martin Heidegger's uh, deconstruction. Um, First, Derrida was trained as a philosopher. This is obvious, but in the context of my story, this is important. Um, So I I should stress here that he's in a slightly different category from the rest of the characters, uh, all literary critics, that I've been discussing. Derrida was also writing professionally on other philosophers prior to the 66 Hopkins Symposium perhaps most famously German philosophers Edmund Husserl and, as you've mentioned, Martin Heidegger. A key to both readings of Derrida's, a key to both, to both Derrida's readings of Husserl and Heidegger is how Derrida was interested in exploring the ways, exploring the tension between history, change over time or temporality, say, um, and metaph- metaphysics or transcendental truth, and how this tension undermined a specific philosopher's stated aims. Early in his career, in the late 50s and early 60s, Derrida, for example, became interested in Husserl's phenomenological work on the ancient Greek uh, uh, philosophers, on whether uh, these philosophers identified transcendental truth or objectivity or the ideal shape in history and time. And by shape, I'm, they were talking about ge- geometric shapes. Herstel suggested that, yes, they essentially did. But Derrida closely reads Husserl's text to show that every expression or inscription or material mark of these transcendental truths, of these geometric truths, in fact, undermines such a transcendental claim. Therefore, even if there was an objective truth, every communication of this truth was marked by the material or social world. Derrida called this the materiality of truth writing, and this writing always already subverted the ostensible self-presence of the idea of transcendental truth. Each inscription, in other words, of ideality was writing. Derrida subsequently began to detect this pattern in Martin, this pattern of of a philosopher's stated aim, uh, unintentionally undermining the text that they produce. He he detected this pattern in Martin Heidegger's monumental Being in Time. In Derrida's 1964-65 ENS seminar given in Paris, Derrida closely read Heidegger's attempt to, quote unquote, destroy metaphysical binaries, to get beyond or behind the Truth or falsity, subjective or objective oppositions. For Derrida, Heidegger ended up actually repeating these metaphysical oppositions in his text. The supreme example that Derrida gave in his seminar is how Heidegger, searching for ontological truth beyond subjective knowing, um, rejects epistemology from such a search. Heidegger's willful exclusion, according to Derrida, fails to recognize that his text itself was constituted in history. The temporality of Heidegger's quest for being, then, was historical through and through. Derrida, quote-unquote, deconstructs, as he modulated Heidegger's deconstruction, the history and philosophy opposition that Heidegger erected in being and time. This and more all led Derrida's deconstructive reading it led to Derrida's deconstructive reading of Claude Lévi-Strauss's exploration of the incest prohibition vis-à-vis the nature-culture opposition at the 1966 Hopkins Symposium. Lévi-Strauss argued that the incest prohibition was the beating heart that organized the broader nature-culture opposition. For example, Lévi-Strauss openly admitted that the incest prohibition is at once universal, found everywhere in all times, and cultural. It's a prohibition and that, and thus an act of social will and decision. It's a paradox upon which the nature culture opposition is rooted. Given on the last day of the symposium and ostensibly written in 10 days, Derrida's paper explored this contradiction, highlighting Levi Strauss's acute observation on the topic, stressing that Levi Strauss himself explained, as Levi Strauss himself explained, the paradox of the incest prohibition subverted the natural, cultural, universal particular uh, dichotomies. By extension, any philosophical attempt to separate nature from culture, any pure natural or cultural form or content was contaminated by its supposed opposite. In this way, for Derrida, the text of Levi-Strauss, like Hirstroll's, like Heidegger's, self-subverted, it, self-subverted itself. More generally, Derrida's reading came to define the 1966 Hopkins Symposium, It was, and, and it was indeed important, but I argue... Should be seen in the the earlier identified context of the Cold War, the then state of American literary criticism, and the specific projects undertaken at the earlier sixty-five Yale Colloquium by Paul DeMond, Jeffrey Hartman, and Ja Miller.
1: So let's go to the uh, let's kind of take our travel here through deconstruction. Let's let's go to the nineteen sixty-eight lectures at the Hopkins Humanities Center by Jacques Derrida. Can you please elucidate those lectures, which critique transcendental ideas without consideration of a messes, which you mentioned, a mimetic play? Mm-hmm. How did Derrida's deconstruction shape Miller's response to the question of what was literary science? And didn't deconstruction ultimately counter science or not? <laughs> what, what, what was science in the context of deconstruction, <laughs> right?
2: Yeah. Um, so the Hopkins Humanity Center, uh, funded in part by the Ford Foundation um, that also supported the 66 Symposium, was a key incubator for structuralist and post-structuralist studies in the United States in the closing years of the 60s and and early 70s. The center center was a place where humanities scholars pursued interpretive questions, often questions built around a theme or or, or question itself. There was, for instance, one year at the center devoted to interpretation. J. Hillis Miller was involved in pushing the Hopkins Humanities Center toward then unorthodox interpretive considerations. Hitherto, Questions of interpretation were subordinated to traditional questions of time, place, or nation, and intellectual or literary convention. In a sense, then, the innovative work undertaken at the Hopkins Humanities Center um, was what we, we today call interdisciplinary at its best and most ambitious. Miller, having been teaching Hopkins for over a decade and a half, attended Derrida's 1968 lectures at the Hopkins Humanities Center. Derrida's reputation had by then skyrocketed in France, and his apparent overturning of Lévi-Strauss sent shockwaves throughout certain corners of the American academic humanist professorate, including uh, reaching Miller, who had been notified of Derrida's deconstruction by none none other than Poulet, uh, Miller's former mentor. Now, at the Humanities Center, Derrida ambitiously aimed to make a statement about the history of interpretation about how Western metaphysical oppositions say reality and representation of that reality, obscure the deconstruction at work and every ter- interpretation to demonstrate his point. Derrida turned to, um, to Mamik, a brief prose fragment about a mime Perot by, um, by, um, uh, Mayamar, um, uh, who vows uh, uh, about a mime Perot and Perot vows while miming to mur- murder his wife. So this is a story about a mime who a mimes murdering his wife. In his reading of Mimique, uh, Derrida argued that the fragment performs a deconstruction, a self-subversion of the dichotomy between reality and representation. Perrault, uh the mime, mimics killing his wife, but ends up literally, literally, literally dying from the act. This reversal or play or interaction between uh, 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 reality and copy actually undermines the reality copy dichotomy. So at this point in J. Hill Miller's intellectual trajectory, uh, he was not what one might later identify as a deconstructionist. But Derrida's reading of Mamique immediately transfixed Miller. Derrida's delivery, his comprehensiveness, his precision, his charm, his drama. The two became friends, having lunch together in subsequent years at Hopkins. Derrida's deconstruction became as influential on Miller's work as Paul de Man's would be in the coming years, specifically Miller turned decisively away from issues about an author's consciousness, and remember Poulet's focus, towards questions of language. One could say that Miller took a quote-unquote linguistic term, for Miller became convinced that the future of literary study and the future of the humanities, in fact, were, uh, were, were rooted somehow in Derrida's manner of interpreting the metaphysical binaries that organize texts. According to Miller, only a deconstructive scientific approach could help get readers so disturbed and distraught by events of the late 1960s to identify the violence that hierarchies and meaning exert on interpretation not only miller but also and hartman for, for not only miller but also DeMont and hartman such a focus on the deconstruction of texts on a scientific way to undermine scientific interpretive methods did not destroy science rather it made interpretive acts more sensitive more incisive and more self-aware deconstruction as miller began to practice it was a self-reflexive science that undermined the principles of science while also remaining scientific. I understand this is sort of like a strange loop, but this is a strange loop that is is particular (laughs) to deconstruction itself. Um, And this was all in line with what American critics wanted and had long sought uh, due to professional intellectual pressures. What I'm trying to say is this is part of this longer tradition that I mentioned, this emphasis on rigor and science. But this is like a more scientific an <laughs> a, a uber-scientific way of being scientific that actually undermines scientific principles itself. And it, it's this point, it's worth mentioning that the history of deconstruction, um, uh, the history of its institution uh, in America, uh, does uh, not begin in, in the trials, traumas, and tribulations of the late 1960s. But as I said, is part of that longer tradition and deeper tradition that goes back um, a half a decade or more. Um, before the Hopkins Symposium that I've just uh, spoken of.
1: How did DeMond's 1970 review of Derrida's treatment of Rousseau's essay on the origins of languages, especially when it came to gestures as, sh- as signs within text that gave primacy, I think counterintuitively, to voice over text, help to institutionalize deconstruction in America? And if possible, if you can, briefly compare DeMond's rhetorical reading of Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy. Um, with Damod's rhetorical reading of possible metacognition in Rousseau's tel, uh, textual self-subversion, may I also want to address some of his teachings in, in actually, in the classroom?
2: Well, Damod met Derrida uh, for the first time over breakfast at the sixty-six Hopkins Symposium. It was then and there that they realized that they both were working on Rousseau's Essay on the Origins of Languages. Uh, it was then a relatively little studied text in Rousseau's oeuvre. Most scholars at the time focused on Rousseau. Uh, Rousseau's political or autobiographical writings. Um, uh, One one, famous Swiss critic, um, Jean uh, Sarabinsky, for instance, influentially argued that Rousseau's consciousness, his paranoia of political authorities, um, whom he thought were hunting him down, directed and dictated the mad fantasies and flights of fancy around his writings. This is a way of approaching the quote-unquote consciousness embedded and embodied in Rousseau's texts. Now, once Daman and Derrida talked, uh, they both uh, Daman recognized that Derrida's treatment of Rousseau's essay took took a different tact, tack, one that was in part aligned with Daman's developing reading technique, and one that was that was a marked marked improvement in rigor or scientificity over historical approaches and psychological approaches to Rousseau's texts. So, what exactly did Derrida do with Rousseau? Generally speaking. Derrida argued that Rousseau unintentionally subverted his professed and famous ontology of presence, that is, the self-presence of meaning um, uh, that was contained, expressed, and exchanged between individuals via the cry of the voice, um, which uh, ostensibly delivered meaning immediately. So Rousseau argued in his essay that the origins of language were this voice, found, for example, in so-called, quote-unquote, primitive peoples, to summarize really quickly. However, Rousseau also argued, almost in the same breath, that gestures and signs were the initial acts upon which meaning were produced. By doing so, uh, Derrida stressed, Rousseau undermined the voice-writing metaphysical opposition that he had initially proposed to have proven or demonstrate in his text. The voice, the immediacy of meaning, did not then have primacy over text, which is a deferred matter of communication, as voice itself was text, and signs as gestures. For Daman, Derrida went halfway there. Derrida was able to hew closely to the text itself to see how it undermined its suppositions, but failed by ascribing an authorial intention outside the text. For Daman, the reader does not know and cannot know Rousseau's aim. What the rigorous and scientific reader can know, or rather trace, for Daman, is how Rousseau's rhetoric, his language, Folded back on itself, subverting that voice writing opposition that I've mentioned. For Daman, Rousseau's text knew, knew it did this. It had a sort of metacognition, a self consciousness, a self reflexivity of the text itself. Now, regarding the institution of deconstruction, deconstruction in America, Derrida's rhetorical reading of Derrida's deconstructive reading of Rousseau came to be held up as an example of the supremacy of literature over philosophy of writing over metaphysics, of literary critics over philosophers, with DeMond himself respected by Derrida for his fidelity to the text. This kind of round-robin interpretive procedure also came to epit- epitomize the competitive nature of rhetorical reading or deconstructive reading in the institution of deconstruction in America. Derrida would return to Deman's reading of Derrida's reading of Rousseau only many years after Deman's death, to give you an idea of how influential and, and quote-unquote, let's say, sacred it was. So it's important to observe, also observe, that Derrida's rhetorical reading of Rousseau's textual self-subversion was, a certain, was to a certain extent a transitional piece. Derrida, at the time, at the late 1960s, was still holding on to the language of consciousness, even if he located this in the text or as text or with literary writing. So we, you mentioned, for example, that metacognition. So Derrida's Adherence to the language of consciousness was basically thrown out the window by the time he assumed his post at Yale University in 1970. By then, Deman in his published pieces, has moved to an explicit concern with identifying how the rhetoric, the linguistic devices and tropes, subverted or conflicted with the text-stated aims. Familiarity with Demann's work leads one to also see that his earlier his earlier attachment to, to using the two modes of temporality how now moved to what he called rhetoric, that conflict. Take DeMond's rhetorical reading of Nietzsche's birth of tragedy, which aimed to narrate, Nietzsche's text aimed to narrate the emergence of Greek tragedy from the competing Apollonian, the language of representation order of truth, and Dionysian, the language of music, chaos, and deception. DeMond identified in Nietzsche's text that, he, that Nietzsche claimed to use Apollonian language to, Apollonian language to identify the spirit of Dionysus. According to Nietzsche's own logic or structure, interpretive structure, Nietzsche's language, his text, then undermine the premises of his narrative from the very beginning. Order always already is unable to capture or represent chaos as chaos slips away from such demands. At De Man, I mean at De Man, at Yale, demand would spearhead among faculty and students this kind of attention to rhetoric which was part of the larger the linguistic turn then being undertaken in the Ameri- in American humanities departments, though a particularly ironic variant.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: So, beginning with the 1969 Politics of the MLA, the Modern Language Association, and the Yale Provost's Reform Committee, please provide the background for the curriculum and class activities of the Experimental Lit X, Y, and Z courses at Yale. Uh, with their emphasis on uh, homo signiferin as quote sign making systems that are sense making systems end quote and if possible please also perhaps address sections of the litx syllabus um, including contingencies in the totality of plot structures
2: um, well literature X y and Z courses um, these were undergraduate courses in um, uh, in the newly established literature major um, established in the early 1970s um, and to understand X, Y, and Z, um, you should uh, one should um, understand that you know the late sixties and early seventies at Yale and of course across the United States were years of massive political and cultural shifts. Um, in the world of professional literary criticism in America, this was certainly true uh, in regards to undergraduate teaching, um, and there were calls. There were waves of calls to be politically relevant, that is, politically engaged in a way that ran counter to formalist orthodoxy, which I mentioned earlier, was to essentially, I mean, more or less isolate the text from from its context. Um, At this 1969 annual meeting of the Modern Language Association, for example, a struggle struggle over the direction of literary education ensued, with radicals openly and forcefully accusing the reigning formalist orthodoxy of ignoring the social context in which professors wrote and taught literature. And they were thinking here, of course, of the Vietnam War. Meanwhile, at Yale, Provost Charles Taylor, at the behest of faculty, organized a committee whose aims was the reform of literary education at Yale. How how, uh, to help students once again appreciate literature, how to make it relevant. Literature X was the first and most controversial course in the sequence that you mentioned. This course was designed by three figures usually not considered part of the deconstructive endeavor. Um, Peter Brooks. French literature, Michael Holquist, Slavic literature, and Alvin Kernan, English literature. They were members of Provost Taylor's committee, and these three architects of Literature X were inspired by the quote-unquote crisis in literary education at Yale and across America. Students, their colleagues felt, no longer appreciated literature and cared more about popular culture, TV, film, etc. On the other hand, professors and teachers of literature throughout America bemoaned the atomization of literary study into fields of literature and specialization. LitX was designed to meet the seeming indifference of undergraduates toward literature and the apparent damage wrought by over-specialization. LitX's pedagogical program essentially challenged the binaries drawn in literary education between high and low literature, literary and non-literary non-liter- texts, and the goal was to reveal cultural items as fictions, as products of man's imaginations imagination. So a beer advertisement, a folk story, a modern novel, a TV show, a Superman comic, all were products of homo Signiferin, of man, the maker of sign systems that are sense-making systems. To get students to think in this quasi-deconstructive manner, Lit X teachers brought students uh, through a four-part pedagogical sequence. And I should mention, you know, it was initially called Literature X, ironically, because it had no core content. This, of course, upset many professors. How could a course not have a core content? What are you teaching them? Well, the idea in this respect was sort of existential or philosophical in that um, everything could be, could be um, literature in this course. So let me run you through the syllabus really quickly. So in the introductory section of Lit X, the storyteller aimed to raise students' understanding of the reflexivity of fiction-making. It had students examine fictions that were themselves about fiction making narratives about narrativization that problematize or thematize storytelling End quote think here of 1001 nights of how sherazade tell her stories to defer the king from executing her the second section encountering things consciousness and things facilitated litzier's lit- further appreciation of the foundational impulse for fiction making Instead of using a Freudian scheme, instead of a Marxist model, um, Lit X used a phenomenologically inspired mode of reading that identified the structures and substance of fictions. The third section was vital because it it assisted students in identifying the nuts and bolts of fiction in the ways fiction or rather all cultural items worked. This third section of Lit X comprised three subsections, the detective story, forms and functions, and anti-plot. The first subsection juxtaposed the Sherlock's home story with Sophocles' Oedipus um, the, um, uh, to classify the patterns that shaped different plots. The final section of Lit X, Shaping the Self, pressed the premise of the experimental course that fiction-making was a universal activity to its philosophical and anthropological limits. This section sharpened people's ability to confront the problematic opposition between fiction and myth. Fiction, quote, as defined by the course's textbook, was a story that was openly or tacitly accepted by creator or audience as not being literally true, while a myth was a story that creator or audience believed to be plainly real. Students examined creation myths from across the globe. Now, Lit Y, adopted in the years after the inaugural run of Lit X in 1971, was more or less designed to take students on a trip through various schools of interpretation, structuralism, formalism, Northrop Frye's archetype, criticism, etc., This was in a way a theory course and it was like Lit Z, not initially attached to a particular department or program. With the creation of the literature major, major, note the absence of a national or intellectual tradition in this major's title. Uh, With the creation of lit major in 63, Lit Y became a key course in the pedagogical program initiated in Lit X. However, it was literature Z, uh, designed by Paul DeMond and Jeffrey Hartman, and also later taught by J. Hillis Miller, which introduced undergraduates to the ins and outs of deconstructive reading. Um, it was designed um, in the mid-1950s, but had its initial run in the late 1970s. Um, and the key difference between Lit X and Lit Z was that the former's heady, expansive approach to, quote-unquote, the text as any and all cultural items was in the latter focus on the tropes and ling- linguistic devices, the rhetoric, that shaped and gave literature its critical power. DeMond and Hartman were keen to stress in the course's proposal that, li- that lit was not experimental, but a continuation of deep intellectual traditions that ran back centuries which focused on rhetoric. If conservative faculty opposed Lit-Z, um i I'm sorry, Lit-X, as many did, lit was quietly adopted in the L c- curriculum. In this literature major course, it's um, DeMond and Hartman introduced rhetorical reading te- te- techniques by way of William Butler uh, uh, Yeats' Among School Children and Nietzsche's deconstruction of the metaphysical opposition between the man of science and the man of art, just to name two examples. Um, it's important to stress that in the popular imagination, deconstruction uh, is portrayed usually as a professor's intellectual game. But let X, Y, and Z show how integral undergraduates were to the institution of deconstruction in America, and in many ways, one could say we're almost co-creators in the deconstructive community at Yale in the in the nineteen seventies and early nineteen eighties.
1: How and why did? Derrida's challenge against the Lacanian treatment of Ed- Edgar Allan Poe's purportedly indivisible in signification 1844 purloined letter contribute to the institutionalization of deconstruction at Yale, while also adibrating the end of the Hopkins School. If you can, you can also address Daman's approaches to semiology, grammar, and rhetoric, as well as his subversion of Chris 1913, uh, the first installment of In Church of Lost Time.
2: Well, Derrida, for, for, for several years, had been visiting and lecturing at, at the Hopkins Humanity Center. In the late 60s, DeMond, Miller, and Derrida were actually all in, in Baltimore. Their intellectual flinch, friendships developed, and they had grown used to seeing and learning from each other. DeMond, moved to Yale, as I mentioned, in 1970, and Ford Foundation funds were drying up. Derrida saw write, the writing on, on the wall, as it were. He had been lecturing on the East Coast— uh, visiting, uh, visiting, uh, giving visiting lectures and was then invited by DeMond and Hartman, Hartman who had returned to Yale in 67. Uh, Derrida was invited to lecture in their comparative literature seminar. Now in America, um, comp lit at the time as a discipline was still looking for a rigorous and scientific way to justify and practice comparativism. Derrida's deconstruction appeared to offer an advanced interpretive model. Specifically, Derrida's challenge of Lacan's psychoanalytic reading of Poe's 1940, uh, uh, know, 1844 purloined letter. Um, uh, Lacan argued that the Queen's stolen letter in the story, sought by Detective Dupont, despite exchanging hands and place, and despite us not knowing what the actual content of this letter was, always returned to its destination, its origin, or source. It was indivisible. For, it was an absent presence, essentially. For Derrida, though, Lacan, Lacan forced metaphysical binaries onto the short story. For example, Lacan, uh, using the signifier signified metaphysical opposition, postulated the letter was an absent signified. For Derrida, the very, the very supposition that there was a signified ignores that this signified was always already deferred and different. For listeners in, in, in Yale Complit, here was a French philosopher versed in the latest interpretive techniques who challenged the philosophical underpinnings of Lacan's reading of Poe's text. Derrida showed how literature subverted philosophy again and again. Literature was the most rigorous, important discourse, the ground of all discourse. This was the general message, I think, that was received. By the time of Derrida's lecture, Miller was pining for the opportunity to be colleagues again with Dumont, while the absence of Derrida in Baltimore was also a personal loss for Miller. Miller, when given the opportunity to move to the Yale English Department, uh, then known as the best English department in the world, Miller decided to leave Hopkins, where he had been for almost 20 years. This really spelled the end of what was very informally known uh, as the Hopkins School, and the beginning of what became known as the Yale School. For when Derrida began his yearly, yearly fall visits in Yale Comp Litt in 1975, visits that DeMond, Miller, and Harmon all worked to ensure happened, it did not take long for an informal group to coalesce around deconstruction. All of these critics, I should stress, were well into their careers at the time, having published texts and books for many years, and having occupied some of the most prestigious academic posts in their disciplines in America. That Yale now housed all of them, sometimes in the same classroom or seminar, reinforced not simply their friendships, but the impression on campus and then nationally that a new group, one that implicitly replaced the Yale New Critics, had arrived. Miller's pr- promotion of the idea of the Yale School in the mid-1950s helped this all along. Now, Deman had made his turn to quote-unquote rhetoric in the first years of the 1970s. Just as the Yale School was about to coalesce, he really solidified his agenda, his attempt to develop a self-reflexive science or discipline of rhetorical reading. In which rhetoric was was seen and identified as the constitutive discourse of discourse of all discourse. <laughs> For example, in in a 1973 article, DeMond established uh, Demond focused on recent developments in France and elsewhere of semiology, the study of social reality as sign systems, and he also uh, uh, analyzed the attempts to identify gram the grammar of discourse, attempts like those of structuralists, in which the former structure was ostensibly excavated to determine the text's meaning. But for DeMond, the most important approaches were rhetorical. Um, In the article, he showed how uh, a grammatical reading of the last line of Among School Children, how can we know the dancer from the dance, is always undermined by the rhetoric of this question. The text, DeMond basically argued, asks, can we indeed tell the difference between the two? The centerpiece of DeMond's article, uh, was his deconstructive reading of Proust's uh, 1913 first installment of In Search of Lost Time. What this deconstruction boils down to is showing how Proust's narrator, a boy reading in, in cool repose in his room, uses what it, upon first reading appears to be a metaphor, the buzzing of the flies, that fuses the inside and outside of his room into a total experience. According to DeMond, however, without getting to too many specifics, this metaphor was in, back, in fact a metonymy. It was contingently opposed and thus did not fuse text and context. Um, this all, I should, I should note, um, uh, subverted major premises of, of literary humanism, the idea that a text could could somehow impart or communicate um, moral lessons to the reader in a sort of very straightforward way. DeMond's uh, um, um, uh, reading, you know, Derrida's reading of, of Lacan's reading of Poe. These were all uh, uh, embedded in, and also countering the sort of like informal uh, assumptions about literary education, and so did literature, literature X, Y, and uh, X, Y, and Z as, as well. Um, subverted them in a way that um, that required the existence of literary humanism, but also uh, uh, undermined this
1: this ideology as well. How did Hartman undermine? The ontological, the onto theological opposition between objective critical writing and subjective creative writing, and how did Harrow Bloom's psychoanically informed six revolutionary ratios intersect with the Yale School? Let's kind of move beyond uh, Derrida for a moment.
2: Um, yeah, uh, well, Jeffrey Hartman, um, uh, unlike Damon Miller and of course Derrida, was trained at Yale. Um, And after spending most of the 60s in the the wilderness at Cornell and then elsewhere, returned to the university's English and complete departments in 67. Now, in Yale English, um, and this is important, I think, to understanding sort of the, let's say, explosiveness, um, intellectual explosiveness at Yale itself. In Yale English, there were a number of new critics, Kenneth Brooks and William K. Wimsatt, that, um, um, along with a handful of senior members of the department, that either retired or died suddenly in the early to mid 1970s. This left um, uh, teaching as well as intellectual vacancies. When Hart- Hartman had been there since 67, as I mentioned, and he now found himself as a senior member of the department, a leading figure nationally for the study of Romantic literature, but also in the burgeoning attention given to rhetoric and literary studies. Hartman always had a deep and wide interest in, in innovative reading techniques, and it, his instinct was always to hold literary form and literary history. In productive tension. In the early 70s, Hartman was as interested in psychoanalytic approaches and post formalist approaches as he was in Derrida's deconstruction, for example. Now, in Yale English, the new criticism still implicitly to an extent reigned, especially in in the way undergraduates saw the department. In this model of teaching and writing about literature, there was a strict opposition between, let's say, a fallen or, or subordinate criticism and a sacred and exalted literary object. The former was but a supplicant to this consecrated way of, of, of being in the world offered by literature. Now Hartman, in a 1973 article and increasingly in his teaching, sought to challenge this 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 division between objective uh, critical writing and uh, subjective creative writing. This was a this was interpretive sacrilege among critics like William Wimsatt. Uh, But for Hartman, it was a function of the age of writing that they all lived and worked. Now, Hartman took his quote-unquote deconstruction of the onto-theological division between objective critical writing and subjective creative writing to the next level in two essays on Derrida's deconstruction of French writer Jean Genet and German philosopher uh, Hegel. Throughout his essays, Hartman flagrantly thumbed his nose at the staid and stiff language of the English gentleman adopted in English studies. He riffed and played and punned with and alongside Derrida's text, both explicating Derrida's approach and relevance for the age of writing, and to a degree, using Derrida's writings to try to realize the romantic dream of harmony between subject, text, and context. Harmon in the end, though, saw such a romantic dream as dangerous, and abandoned such metaphysical attempts. i like to highlight here that uh, stress here that Hartman had made his scholarly name studying William Wordsworth and did so at a time in the early to mid 1960s when the romantics, especially the English ones were viewed with suspicion of having weak minds and too much emotion. The fact that Hartman joyously engaged Derrida's writings, even if he at times risked, um, aestheticizing it, signaled a breaking of the constraints placed in, in English, uh, in English studies, English literature studies. Um, now turning to Har- Harold Bloom and Yale and the Yale School, well, Harold Bloom, uh, more than more explicitly than Hartman, I'd argue, struggled against the Anglican uh, Christian culture in Yale English. Both Bloom and Hartman were Jewish, but Bloom, Bloom, uh, Bloom was born and raised in the Bronx. Hartman born and raised in Germany and escaped on a kinder transport to England during World War II. Bloom, Bloom's first language, in fact, was Yiddish. He also attended, attended graduate school in Yale English. Member Hartman went to Comp Lit, and, and Bloom was, in, was actually immediately hired by the department in the late 1950s. Bloom certainly respected his Yale teachers, above all William Wimsat, but he also resented their rejection of the Romantics, their adherence to literary formalism, and how many of them believed poetry captured Christian truth. And that was that moral, the moral uh, uh, imparting of moral truths that I mentioned earlier. What well, Bloom came up with, just around the time that Miller and DeMond joined Yale, were his psychoanalytically informed, quote, six revisionary ratios. Bloom argued that these describe the ways in which a struggling young poet willfully and secretly draws inspiration from, while also hiding their debts to, a revered precursor. In such a model of literary history, for example, a poem, say from the mid 19th century, could be read as actually inspiring a poem from the late 18th century, precisely because the former secretly derived inspiration from the latter. In a sense, Bloom was offering a deconstruction of the origin-derivation metaphysical opposition that organized so much of English poetic history. Um, Bloom's theory of misreading was also a revision of literary history um, in a manner that stayed purely textual, if I could put it that way. The happy, humanistic progress of prose and poetry espoused in Yale English and generally generally in literature departments across America, in which literary work in part in morals or intellectual or spiritual elections, it lessens progressively, uh, was radically subverted by what Bloom was doing with his theories of reading. In this manner, Bloom's work intersected with the Yale School. But there's more on this topic because inspired in part by his good friend DeMond's emphasis on rhetoric, Bloom continued in a series of rapidly published texts to refine his six revisionary ratios. Giving each of them a specific rhetorical name, Bloom even came to see his rhetorical re- revisionary terms in, this, in the in in scholars of Kabbalah, and a short text um, that emerged from his in a short text that emerged from lectures at Yale. His readings challenged any dominance lingering that the Christian inf- inflected culture in Yale English. Hartman was subversive this culture to be sure, but not as openly and directly as Bloom. At Yale, in fact, students realized that Bloom's project was at once a way to establish self sovereignty. He eventually left Yale English for a department of one, and it was also an aim to supplant, uh, by whatever means, the lingering ghosts of the new critics. That he pursued this rhetorical project alongside and drawing energy and ideas from DeMann and others is notable, for really the work of all the Yale school members and even the lit ex architects challenged the tenets of
1: humanism. How did the Yale School respond to criticism of its own project, particularly Demand's purity of deconstructive thought, in its complete rhetorical reading seminar?
2: Um, it's important to recognize that uh, the, 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 the Yale School was not, a mo- was not monolithic, right? They had overlapping interests and emphasis during the 70s and 80s. However, they were united in establishing a self-aware um, sort of rhetorical reading as the primary science of interpretation. On one side, there was Daman, whose ascetic approach to the text itself was praised by even his, his opponents. On the other, there was Bloom and Hartman, to an extent, who was mindful of the authorial source of literature, though in a way that saw this context in the text. Furthermore, as this was somewhat, it was a somewhat divided group, there was never any concerted response to criticism per se. But this was also likely due to the very nature of the rhetorical project and commitments to it. Let me explain. DeMond, for example, mentioned at one point to colleague Barbara Johnson that he never tried to correct misrepresentations of what he was doing or his readings because doing so would, quote, go against the very drift of his work. In other words, DeMond rather would let the misreadings that that he destroyed literature and literary humanism multiply. It's not like they were the interpret, not like the Yale School were the interpretive police, the metaphysical arbiters of what was deconstruction and what was not. Derrida was once approached in the early 1980s to explain his differences from Damon. Um, at that time there was a lot of debate and, and confusion um, and, 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 and about the differences between DeMond's approach and Derrida's approach. Um uh, and Derrida basically avoided directly answering when when questioned and he proceeded to, to deconstructively read the words deconstruction in an america <laughs> this was derrida's answer bloom and hartman by the late 1970s were already engaged in other major projects hartman became involved with the holocaust video archives at yale and bloom went off and pursued his interests before turning to more popular criticism and the defense of the literary canon bloom when others would criticize deconstruction, was would stress that he wasn't part of the Yale school, that he never considered himself a member, and that his approach radically differed from that of a Deman or Derrida. I would argue that this was a way of, again, de Bloom uh, sort of establishing his self sovereignty and disavowing his own influences, um, which is a way in sort of, uh, of him practicing his own theory of reading. Still, Charges of deconstructiveness, of elitism, of being quote-unquote chained to the library carol, of avoiding social and historical reality, these all left their mark on the reputation of the Yale School. These are the kinds of criticisms leveled not only by Marxists but also cultural conservatives. The Yale School members, when they did respond, did so in elusive ways. Miller, for example, often would answer criticisms by performing a deconstructive reading of the very texts in which these criticisms were. Criticisms were lodged. I'll go more about <laughs> uh, go more into this in my answer to the next question. DeMond himself said these kinds of readings were irrefutable, quote-unquote. Hartman, assessing the intellectual landscape in the mid-1970s in one essay, pointed to the quote-unquote scientific nature of the rhetorical endeavors and how a fidelity to the text was not a completely new way of reading hell-bent on alienating students and teachers. He noted in his essay that it was certainly unfortunate that deconstruction and associated new reading techniques arrived during the post-Golden Age of funding and support in the humanities, but this was simply a reality, Hartman would, would say. Commentators who saw the Yale group as mirroring the post-Watergate, post-Vietnam mistrust in language prevalent in American society, therefore, missed these deeper settings and longer traditions that shaped, shaped the Yale group's pedagogical intellectual project. So, to summarize just this first part of the question, they were either avoided the question often, um, responded in deconstructive manners um, uh, 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 that sort of uh, complicated uh, the, the issue even further, um, or claimed in the case of Bloom that they never even were part of the deconstructive group in the first place. And to answer the second part of your question about Damond's purity of deconstructive thought. Um, so this was... <laughs> This was actually a comment made by Hartman, an observation, and this was both a compliment in a way and a criticism, I'd argue. This was, um, uh, you know, Deman's students and colleagues commented on, on the purity of his deconstructive thought um, and that this was almost, I would say, almost like a religious nature. You know, Deman was, was the quote-unquote high priest of deconstruction, um, and his writings, however small in number, carried a lot of intellectual weight while his students closely followed his teachings to, quote-unquote, the letter. On the other hand, Hartman's suggestion that DeMond pursued a purity of deconstructive thought was a polite way of saying DeMond ignored history. DeMond did not respond to this type of criticism from his friends. He even repeatedly portrayed Derrida's and Hartman's approaches in his seminar as being in line with his own. The criticism from within the Yale school camp, let's say against DeMond's purity of deconstructive thought, was this, in a way, papered over? I mean, Deman uh, just sort of pursued his project, um, even when his, you know, close friend uh, Bloom would 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 criticize Daman's emphasis. Deman would again respond with rhetorical readings of, of of Bloom's writings. So there was no actually direct engagement, let's say. And again, this this indirectness, this focus on the the um, rhetoricity of of the text, even of criticism, you know. T- texts that are criticizing uh, a member. This is part of the um, the deconstructive project, right, to, to emphasize the figurative nature the, uh, of, of the language being used.
1: How did debates and deliberations at the MLA, like Miller... Um, The Deconstruction and Criticism Collection, as well as DeMond's and Derrida's subversion of the notion of comparative literature and their increasing emphasis on deconstruction as linguistic rather than literary methodology, all expedite the ebbing of the Yale School. Well, the overall teaching and writing goals of the Yale School, as I mentioned, was to,
2: to I, I argue, uh, establish the, the self-reflexive science or discipline of rhetorical reading as the primary matter of interpretation. What this means is that rhetoric or figurative language, recognizing that rhetoric and figurative language served as a building block for all discourse, ethical, political, historical. Now, the Yale group did not spell this out very explicitly. To do so would be, as I mentioned, contrary to the principles of the group itself. However, the increasing emphasis on deconstruction as a linguistic instead of a literary way of reading did, as you say, expedite the ebbing of the Yale school. Already at the first ever panel on philosophical approaches to literature at the 1976 MLA, and I should say that this this panel itself is a sign of the growing interest in the 1970s, not simply of deconstruction. Uh, but of affiliated reading techniques beyond the formalist impasse of the 1960s. So at the 76 MLA panel, there was both both misrepresentation of deconstruction as a linguistic uh, methodology and sort of a (laughs) bizarrely uh, um, uh, reinforcement of this by Miller himself. Let me explain. At the MLA panel, M.H. Abrams, a towering figure who spearheaded the revival of Romantic study in the late 1950s, as well as Bloom's undergraduate teacher, cast the Yale group, and here he meant DeMond, Miller, and Derrida, as being concerned with quote-unquote words on the page. Not only was this applicable in a sense to really DeMond and Miller, but not Derrida's project, which actually was rooted in his deconstruction of the temporality, historical, metaphysical opposition. Not only this, but Miller's paper did little to to really help (laughs) explain the situation here. In his paper, Miller punned away and deconstructively read P.B. Shelley's poem, The Triumph of Life. Um, and He he argued that the poem uh, commented on and parasitically lived off the history of Western literary texts. Um, (laughs) um, DeMann also contributed to the view of deconstruction as a literary theory, not at the MLA, but just in general. And, you know, in his seminars, as you mentioned, some of which had uh, professors... uh, um, In his seminars, de grew increasingly focused on figurative language. Um, uh, Meanwhile, Derrida was giving seminars in Yale Comp Lit, uh, one of which highlighted the deconstructed nature of of the the comparative literature discipline itself and how definitions of it and boundaries put around it were metaphysical. So these all... Could only contribute to the impression that deconstruction was was really concerned uh, wasn't really concerned with anything or any uh, anything at all or anything in particular but was really just sort of a, a game of language um, that wasn't tied to any sort of um, uh, say materiality. Um, now deconstruction and criticism, the 1979 volume that many read as an introduction to the Yale School of thought was initially planned for undergraduate and graduate students. As strange as it might seem that the that deconstructionist text might be read by an undergraduate student in the late 1970s, it was initially planned as a how-to manual. That's what the publisher wanted. But uh, And Bloom had, in fact, made calls to his friends and asked them to contribute essays on Shelley, the new critic's favorite hapless romantic. In the resulting book, the Yale group didn't hold back, and it's difficult to imagine... Uh, As I said, undergraduates really reading it. um, In his short introduction to the volume, Hartman famously distinguished his and Bloom's work from the work of Daman, Miller, and Derrida. The former were interested, Hartman uh, noted, in the pathos and source of figurative language, right? the author. While the latter crew were quote-unquote Boer deconstructors, according to Daman, critics who queued close to the page and the page only. This for sure expedited the ebbing of the Yale School, at least from within. Um, moreover, the aim to establish a reflexive science for rhetorical reading was not highlighted here or elsewhere in the text, leading to the impression that deconstructionists just played with language or liked to view texts as they played with language, willy-nilly. As I said, Hartman and Bloom were already engaged in different endeavors. Um, and, and uh deconstruction and criticism the volume introduced the academic world to deconstruction and the Yale school, but also ironically marked the first and last time the group were gathered together in such a manner. Um, so I think that um you know I should also stress that you know in DeMond's seminars um um some sometimes he had a NEH sponsored seminar where professors uh, an elite group from across the United States came to learn the deconstructive arts and in in these seminars DeMond really um, emphasized increasingly emphasized figurative language. Um, so again, um, this also led to the impression I think um, uh, which bore some truth that the Yale school was primarily concerned with with rhetoric.
1: So the next two questions have to do with women in deconstruction. Hmm. Why did the so-called brides of deconstruction and criticism become the, quote, top brass of deconstruction, despite resistance by figures such as Harold Bloom? I thought that was interesting. And how did a deconstructive political strategy help navigate the equality versus difference issue in uh, waves of feminism?
2: So to answer that question requires appreciating how the 60s rocked Yale, like other institutions across the country. Um, The arrival of women undergraduates in 1969 at Yale, and then feminism feminism on campus, these were important intellectual, cultural, political events. Um, The presence of women and feminism on the Yale campus slowly but surely transformed the university's culture, though much resistance was put up. Everything from open harassment during lectures to being passed over from promotion— women were passed over. Yale was an institution with hundreds of years of androcentric tradition behind it. Yale was also a microcosm of how women fared in the American academy for women for many decades and that women had, for all intents, uh, did not partake in the professional fruits given during, during the golden age expansion of higher education. This was due to the unequal division of labor in the home and the widely held view that research and being a scholar were masculine. At Yale, the number of tenured faculty members in the Arts and Humanities Division was minuscule, and the admission of women to to the undergraduate uh, to undergraduates as undergraduates constituted a groundswell. In the early 1970s, feminist groups advocated for change in curricula, such as women's studies courses, and slowly women were hired in tenure track positions. This all despite the nosedive in terms of funding and support that Yale um, and the rest of the American Academy experienced in the nineteen seventies. Now, coalescing in part around the years years long push to found a women's study program and then major at Yale during the 1970s, the so called brides of deconstruction and criticism became the top brass of deconstruction within and out of these and other settings and contexts. Part of the power of their work hinged on the fact that the Yale School, a group who aimed us to identify, the repressed pair in a set of binary of a binary opposition was like Yale, in fact in fact like knowledge production in the West, also a product of a masculine metaphysics. This is a way of thinking and living in which men and the masculine are privileged in the production of meaning. Only rarely and very obliquely did the Yale school concern themselves with with, with issues of sex or gendered language. Bloom in fact, Openly downplayed the intellectual achievements of women, and when he, and he, as when he relegated Mary Shelley as a mere introduction to the British Romantic poets and writers, which of course is not how she's seen today. Um, uh, some of the some of so called brides um, were graduate students um, uh, of what of what Barbara Johnson ironically called this quote unquote male school. So Barbara Johnson herself was Demont student. Eve Sedgwick was Miller's in English. Um, other brides, though, were not. Shoshana Fellman, for example, was hired by Daman and French over the protests of his colleagues. <clears throat> in the early to mid 1970s, uh, members of the future brides of deconstruction and criticism, a title I should note that, that was to be their counter manifesto, op- the, the, these members were not yet openly challenging the masculine metaphysics that organized the male school and Yale and knowledge in general. Johnson, for example, became known as one of the best American interpreters of Daman and Derrida's work. By the mid to late 1970s, however, the Brides were taking the reflexive science of rhetorical reading and using it to interpret all different kinds of texts, many feminists in implication. By doing so, the Brides not only revised the pedagogical intellectual project of the Yale School and gave it a political punch that it lacked in the hands of a demand and Derrida, they also eventually made major interventions in fields of study and even came to help establish others such as gender studies, gay studies, and trauma studies. Johnson, for example, used Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to uncover the destructive masculine metaphysical fantasy of Western humanism, while Shoshana Feldman used the texts of American and French feminists to elaborate a new constructive way of, quote unquote, being woman. These are only two examples um, of how the Brides became the advanced guard of the deconstructive movement in America. During the the early 1980s, the informal group, which never had its manifesto, broke up. Johnson, for example, left for Harvard, though their influence, in fact, increased. Cedric went on to make major contributions to the study of Victorian literature and, and expanded her earlier interest in rhetoric into elaborating how Western culture and language was twisted by questions of gender. Fellman applied rhetorical reading techniques to develop trauma studies. Just as the Brides emerged as a group, feminisms of all stripes um, made, uh, made a, a sort of a, a major push in the early 1980s. And, and the Brides greatly contributed to this. Um, the Brides, besides incisively compellingly, identif- and compellingly identifying the sex and gender literary language employed throughout Western culture, um, one key reason why the brides became the top brass was because they flourished in a professional environment increasingly competitive and based on the strengths of the publications. The brides were producing the most innovative and rigorous work out there. At Yale and elsewhere, this meant attention and advancement. Now, the equality versus difference issue. Um, this was an issue debated by feminists and different categories of feminists in the 1980s whether one should fight for equality or stress the difference between the sexes. A quote-unquote deconstructive political strategy could help, according to historian Joan Scott, navigate these two feminist interpretive strategies. With this strategy, one one struggles for equality by way of emphasizing the sex and gendered hierarchies in culture. A deconstructive historian, for example, could narrate how the construction of a gendered hierarchy in certain kinds of labor relegated, uh, relegated this labor into categories of feminine and masculine but they could do so with the goal of eventual equality. This was an example of deconstruction and how it could have a different kind of political impact. And this equality and difference issue uh, in the case of in the 1980s really actually uh, entered different fields and disciplines just as deconstruction was truly ebbing in American literary criticism where, where um, other other ways of approaching literature were um, becoming more more pronounced and um, and also due to the demon affair, which I talk about uh, later.
1: What was subaltern scholar's Gyatri Spivak's criticism of the Yale school and the significance of that 1976 quote epic preface to her translation, her, her renowned translation of Derrida's *Of Grammatology*? Why did she choose to perform deconstruction on Derrida's forerunners like Heidegger, etc.? rather than provide institutional intellectual contexts, context. Uh, and if possible, could you address Derrida's thoughts on this introduction? I mean, basically, Spivak saw the Yale School
2: um, as extending new critical formalist reading techniques, which in, ex- in some ways, this is true, um, although radically subverting them. Uh, uh, he, she, she saw them uh, as doing this and uh, as also extending the canon of male authors, Um, In this regard, Spivak uh, was commenting on the clubbiness of the Yale School and how, yes, they did, quote unquote, rescue certain authors deemed unworthy by the new critics and the modernists, but also created their own personal exalted writers who, as a matter of fact, were basically all white men. Furthermore, Spivak understood that Derrida's work was being used by certain Yale school members and throughout the deconstructive community in a manner that actually either ignored or somehow undermined the formidable political power of his work itself. <clears throat> you now Spivak uh, in part due to her background, um, you know, in part to her yearn- earning her PhD in English literature, Cornell under Demont himself saw the political power of Derrida's deconstruction of Western metaphysics. Spivak would go on to use Derridaean reading techniques to deconstructively read the works of subaltern studies, for example, a new field with post colonial aims. Now, the significance of Spivak's 1976 quote unquote epic preface, preface to her translation of Derrida's Of Grammatology is that, first, it was often the first piece of writing many encountered on Derrida. That alone is important. But, but more than this is the fact that Of Grammatology was initially published in 76. And here was an introduction by a literary scholar for an American audience almost a decade after the text's initial publication. By focusing on Derrida's forerunners, rather than provide institutional and and intellectual context, Spivak presented a very specific picture of Derrida's work, one in which the context of its initial publication was to to a degree obscured. Furthermore, Of Grammatology was really a programmatic work, I'd argue, a work where Derrida laid out the, the "quote-unquote" world historical reasons for deconstruction in the first part, and followed up with examples of Rousseau, uh, of the deconstruction of Rousseau and levi Strauss in the second half. As to why Spivak did, did as to why Spivak, uh, performed deconstruction on Derrida's forerunners rather than provide um, institutional intellectual context. Well, the very question of the preface was famously raised by Derrida. Can a preface really provide the essence of the subsequent text? If it does, then why read the text, not simply the preface? Derrida quote unquote deconstructs the opposition between preface and work, showing how they are in fact textually implicated with each other. I imagine Spivak took some inspiration from this and decided to write a deconstructive introduction to, of, of grammatology. That is an introduction that always already referred back to Darius intellectual forerunners, Freud, Heidegger, Herschel, and others. To be fair, This is a certain kind of intellectual history, uh, one that is not recognized by professional intellectual historians. But I I mean, you know, I I would do want to say that, you know, Spivak was not trained as a historian and one ought not expect her to write like a historian. Nonetheless, Demond himself was skeptical of Spivak's ability to pull off uh, her translation and preface. He noted in a letter of recommendation that he doubted Spivak's training sufficiently supplied her with the knowledge and tools to contextualize Derrida in his contemporary French context. And yet, Derrida thought Spivak's text harmonious with his philosophical commitments. He considered Spivak's epic pre- preface itself to have performed deconstruction as as partly because Spivak herself was 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 uh, due to her biography and interests uh, often othered um, as a woman and because of her ethnic background. So Derrida was very, very, uh, as far as I know, uh, very, um, uh, generous and gracious, um, and, and pleased with the introduction, even though some in the deconstructive community, I think came to find fault with it. And, uh, you know, let's say, uh, not accused, but, but worried that it, it gave a, um, a truncated view of, uh, Derrida and, um,
1: So this next question involves uh, demand and his, the posthumous Nazi issues. So I'm going to be uh, – I know it can be a, a fractious topic, so I'm going to be uh, quite careful with what I ask. And this will finish up our questions for the podcast. Um, so the new historicism, a la Foucault, the man's 1984 death from cancer and the posthumous Nazi scandal that I mentioned, as well as Miller, Miller's and Derrida's transfers to UC Irvine's School of Criticism and Theory, the SCT, all sounded the death knell of the Yale School. Uh, in this context, please explain how Derrida's conflation of his own approach uh, to Demand's rhetorical reading Uh, As well as Derrida's argument that a metaphysical and ahistorical will or spirit was common to both Nazism and liberalism and discourses of anti-Nazism, both contributed to his attempts to collapse Demand's silence on authorship of Nazi anti-Semitic articles with Demand's references to a Jewish spirit and implied confession of wartime activities prior to his death. Um, If you want, you can also address Shoshana Fellman's deconstruction of Demand and whether or not uh, that purity of deconstructive thought, uh, as described by by DeMaz students, um, in, con- in conjunction with the possible, possible pursuit of romantic politics of aesthetics, contributed to Derrida's embrace of Nazism and later duplicity. I know he was a bigamist and all, all this other all this stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is this is yeah this is a, a very, <laughs> very 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 um, I think um, well I should say that you know uh, this project began uh, on the demon affair itself. So many years ago, so I should, I should, um, I should say that, you know, um, initially, um, um, you know, let's say my history of deconstruction or whatever began with, uh, this, these questions, some of these questions. Um, so, um, I've had, I've had to, um, I've, I've lived with these, these questions and the answers I've come up with, um, and other, other figures answers for, for a long time. So let me, let me try to answer this. Um, And I I am also going to try to be very careful with my language. Okay, so Derrida found himself after DeMond's death in 83 as the most prominent practitioner of deconstruction in America. And it was to him that many allies turned when deconstruction was constantly being attacked in the press or by colleagues. Um, After DeMond's death, not only, as you noted, did Miller and Derrida transfer to UC Irvine, thereby ending the Yale School, but but, uh, almost willful misrepresentations of deconstruction by general humanists as much as rival academic specialists were appearing very frequently. The so-called crisis of the humanities, which actually is a crisis that extends back to the establishment of the modern humanities in the late 19th century, was gaining attention inside and out of the academy, and often deconstruction was being blamed for this crisis. This all added to the general atmosphere of suspicion toward deconstruction and associated specialized theories of interpretation. Out of what can only be loyalty, loyalty to his friend, Daman, um, Derrida stated that he never had a word of disagreement with, with, with Daman. Uh, Derrida did not clarify uh, directly clarify his differences with Deman's rhetorical reading, nor did Derrida really take the time to respond to these very public attacks in America. Rather, he continued with his deconstructions. Uh, this all contributed to, to the then widely held views that deconstruction will you know, to interpret a power played with language, without any ethical, political, or historical moorings. And that Derrida it also contributed, contributed to the view that Derrida and Demond's work were one and the same. Derrida, Derrida did not help matters when, after it was discovered again in the late 1980s, that Heidegger was literally a card-carrying Nazi. This was, co- in fact, common knowledge in what was, what was old was new again in the case of Heidegger, and a transatlantic controversy ensured not only that Heidegger and his work, but also work inspired by his work, like deconstruction, was painted as nihilistic and destructive. When Derrida suggested in an interview that a metaphysical and ahistorical quote-unquote will or spirit was common to both Nazism and liberalism, and by this he meant metaphysical binaries structured both traditions, Okay. And that you had to be careful not to to give in to these 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 assumptions of, of absolutes. When he did this in an interview, the opponents of deconstruction said, "Oh, this is evidence of the bankruptcy of the entire intellectual movement." Now, again, this is all before the Demon affair happened, right? So, so um, there's a you know a, a sort of um, <laughs> uh, people waiting in the wings for, for definitive proof, let's say, of the bankruptcy of deconstruction. So the real kicker came, the real kicker against the institution of deconstruction came in in 87 when it was discovered that Daman, who died in 83, had authored approximately 200 articles for pro-German newspapers in his native Belgium during World War II, a volcano of outrage and anger erupted. How to respond, especially with The Nation, The New Republic, and The New York Times publishing about the revelations. Well, Derrida girded himself and penned a doomed essay in Critical Inquiry, that deconstructively engaged Deman his silence, his wartime articles, and his post-war work. Derrida's essay was framed and informed by the reception of deconstruction in the American public sphere. When he, for example, argued that Deman's thesis in, a, in, a, in in a, in a, in a, in a in an article, uh, Jews in Contemporary Literature, 1941, Deman's thesis uh, made against, quote-unquote, vulgar anti-Semitism. When, when Derrida argued that it could be deconstructively read as an argument Against anti-Semitism, in as much as it is vulgar, or for a more refined variety, Derrida um, was simply asking too much of many of his readers, even those sympathetic. Many now truly found confirmation of deconstruction's bankruptcy. And I should should um, note that inside the academy, um, there you know, since DeMond's death and let's say the disbanding of the Yale School, there was a you know a, a plethora of of new um, uh, reading techniques. You mentioned the new historicism, new 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 historical methods. You know, deconstruction was was pretty much um, considered. I wouldn't say passé, but um, was really on the outs. And you know, when J. Hillis Miller became president of the Modern Language Association in 1986, I mean, how could anyone <laughs> any longer claim that deconstruction was subversive when you know one of the towering figures of the Yale School was now president of the MLA? The point being that deconstruction and literary criticism was already on the way out. So when Derrida uh, was making these arguments, not only in the public sphere, but inside the academy itself, deconstruction and anyone who had, who adhered to this sort of way of interpretation was experiencing incredible pressures. Um, so here was deconstruction's bankruptcy. Now, when Derrida deconstructively read DeMond's 35 Years of Silence, arguing that DeMond's Silence was not really silence, because now it, w- it was apparent that he confessed. Derrida argued that Derrida indirectly spoke of his errors in, of, in his post-war writings and the dangers of succumbing to the romantic aesthetic ideologies, as the Nazis had done. Again, readers were up in arms, and Derrida was accused of making these arguments out of sheer unadulterated loyalty and fear that his intellectual empire was crumbling. I would like to add that you know Derrida's, Derrida's deconstruction, rooted. I argue, you know, in in, in, in the deconstruction of the uh, temporality his, history uh, opposition, often when he did perform a deconstructive reading, created a third term, okay? So, for example, trace, okay? Trace is, you know, neither fully present nor nor uh, fully absent, okay? So Derrida would, would focus on these terms. Uh, when Derrida read DeMond's wartime writings, he did not do this he basically stopped at the at identifying the the binary, right? This actually was more in line with demands uh, of rhetorical reading. And, you know, Derrida did not explain this, okay? Um, it was very confusing for those in the deconstructive community. It was outrageous to many in the deconstructive community that Derrida would even do this. You know, some implored Derrida, implored him not to engage uh, at all. Um, Derrida saw this as a way to intervene into history, um, into into the metaphysical uh, abuse, let's say, that was being done to uh, his dead friend, to deconstruction, uh, to an entire way of thinking that, that Derrida believed had clear ethical and political ramifications. And if you do do follow Derrida's uh, follow in terms of agree with Derrida's uh, f- philosophy, then um, you know uh, uh, there is a case made uh, to be made there. However, there were a host of issues that were unresolved. Um, You know, Shoshana Fellman offered in 1988 a psychoanalytically informed rhetorical reading of Daman's life and work. For Fellman, uh, the young Daman more or less was a committed supporter of the Nazi takeover of Europe and their ideology, only to realize at some point during the war that he made a massive mistake. Fellman's Daman then quote-unquote converted, abandoning his life in Europe, and then pursued his deconstructive thought to both never again repeat his earlier grave political mistakes and implicitly critique those mistakes. For Fellman, implicitly, to speak openly about demand, for DeMond to speak openly about his past would be to represent it. And because representation, every narrative, let's say, was rhetorically distorted, Demont chose to remain silent and uh, the implication is ethically to pursue uh, his project. So DeMond's possible pursuit of a romantic politics of aesthetics So, I'm sorry, your question, did DeMond's possible pursuit of a romantic politics of aesthetics contribute to his purity of deconstructive thought and his duplicity? It does appear, I would say, that many in the deconstructive camp, like Fellman, seem to think that DeMond's singular post-war focus, almost ascetic in nature, on the political dangers of the romantic aesthetics prevented him from openly confessing. This, in a sense, created what you want to call his duplicity but in another register or another way could be said, his rhetoricity, his deconstructive insights. So I, I, I I hesitate to say, uh, I would say more like a tangled web of decisions that we, you know, we don't have the historical record for um, that. um, I think, I think that would be a more, uh, you know, during the affair, Jeffrey Hartman, uh, one of DeMond's closest friends gave his own interpretation. And, you know, Hartman, who was always interested in in psychoanalysis, but also keenly interested in in, in, in the rhetoricity of of language, like Daman, basically argues that that uh, you know Daman may have been, you know what? He actually, he has a question: Was Daman deceived about himself? Did he deceive himself? Right? How much did we know? Hartman basically says um, the best we can do is is reconstruct. Um, a series of undecidables, you know, and this of course, uh, is Demand's, uh, <laughs> a way of rhetorical reading. So will we, should we use Demand's rhetorical reading to read Demand's life and works? I don't necessarily have an answer for this, but to zoom out, to zoom out to the, to the consequences for the institution of deconstruction. I mean, it was, it was pretty, it was very devastating. Um, and, um, you know, one, one philosopher said that, you know, uh, the deconstructive community never really got o- got over uh, the, the revelations. And I think that there's definitely some truth there. Um, Derrida went on in the 1990s until his death in 2004, you know, uh, um, uh, you know uh, uh, doing his very important work in philosophy, interdisciplinary work, was taken up in cultural studies. Um, but in terms of the institution of deconstruction, as I discussed in my book, um, that that essentially was was um, in many ways uh, broken apart, um, um, and uh, because of the Devon affair and the controversy,
1: there is self duplicity, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, there is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, thank you for your um, pretty nuanced uh, responses. So I have one last quick query: uh, What's going on with you next? Do you have any uh, projects on the horizon? Um.
2: <laughs> Well, I, I, um, I have two. Um, one would, would be a, a non-academic book, actually. Um, uh, um, they're a collection of essays, uh, sort of like a travelogue or, you know, um, American academic in exile in China. Uh, that would be the, the topic. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have one essay being published in the, the German cultural magazine Mercure on Shenzhen. My experience as a historian... In Shenzhen, which is basically a city without history, it's a very young city. Um, and I, I do slowly working on a on a project uh, on um, on on globalizing what I call American theory. So the domestic production of theory in the United States, starting in 1965 into the early 21st century, the domestic production, but also let's say the export of theory to uh, you know France, Germany, China. Um, so that's a a. <laughs> I would say a global intellectual history. Um, I'm sort of starting that. Um, and you know, uh, both those projects, uh, are, you know, uh, I'm getting started a little bit, but, but I did want to thank you, Ryan, for your excellent, excellent and probing questions. I, I, I did have a, I had a lot of fun thinking and answering them and sort of, um, yeah. So I just wanted to, to thank you for, for, for the learned
1: much from your, I learned much from your book. It filled in certain gaps, that I had in the, in this, the de- the history of deconstructive de- deconstruction and the history of history of deconstruction. Um, so the book is deconstruction an American institution by uh, Greg Jones Katz. Thank you for being on the podcast and on behalf of uh, Greg Jones Katz. Uh, I hope he returns to our podcast with his project's, and I hope uh, our audience continues to listen to uh, us. This has been a uh, this has been a production of the New Books Network. The channel is New Books in History. Please tune in next time.